The number one reason why Christians struggle to continue to believe in Jesus is suffering. The number one reason why some people refuse to accept Jesus in the first place is suffering and evil in this world. We look around and say, God, if you're good, you could do something about these circumstances. God, if you're powerful, then do something. And whether it's our own suffering or when we watch someone else going through something so horrific and so difficult, we stop and ask, God, where are you? God, do you not care? God, are you not involved? I heard a story this week of a young woman who has turned her back on Jesus um, because her dad died. And I don't know her story super well, but I can only imagine that after all of those prayers and all that faith, for him still to have died, she's just like, why bother? This morning we want to think about the fact that to be honest, we do have these questions. And if you're going through a crisis of faith, if you're struggling to believe, if you're experiencing suffering or you're watching somebody else experience suffering or you're just looking around seeing the evil in this world and you want to say, how long, Lord? When are you going to do something and you are doubting or have doubted or know someone who is doubting? I want you to know you're not alone. That we all go through crises of faith. It doesn't matter how strong you are when you experience suffering or you see someone else go through something that you know God has the power and the desire to do something about and doesn't, it's shaking to our faith. And so this morning, we want to humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, we want to be honest with you. All of us go through crises of faith. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the rack in front of you. It looks like this. If you would take and use that Bible, uh, turn to page 791. 791, that's Matthew chapter 11. For the last several months, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it's a story of Jesus. It's called a Gospel, but it tells us about Jesus' life and ministry here on earth, his death and his resurrection. And one of the beautiful things about reading about Jesus is that he never shies away from anything difficult or hard the stuff we need to hear and experience in our everyday lives. So Matthew 11, we read this story about Jesus and his interactions with John the Baptist. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come 
or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Our story begins with a shocking question. In verse 3, John the Baptist asks, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is John the Baptist asking Jesus, Are you the Messiah, or are we waiting for someone else? Now the reason why this is such a shocking question is let's remind ourselves why John the Baptist should not be asking this question. After all, remember back to the birth of John the Baptist. His father Zechariah was a priest. He was chosen by lot to go and minister in the temple. And while he's on duty, an angel appears to Zechariah and says, you and your wife are going to have a son. Now his wife Elizabeth has been barren her entire life, and the both of them are past childbearing age. And the angel announces this is going to be a miraculous birth, and when this baby is born, you must call him John. The angel goes on to say about John the Baptist, that he is going to be more than a prophet. Jesus refers to it here. He is going to be the one of whom Malachi and Isaiah prophesied. This is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is going to be the one who prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. 
Everybody has been waiting for the Messiah. Now John is going to be born and he's the one we've been waiting for because he's preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. The angel goes on to say, your baby boy John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That's said of no one else in history up until that point other than Jesus. And so the circumstances surrounding John's miraculous birth, the prophecies that he's fulfilling, the coming of the Spirit, what's said about him, he is second only to Jesus in having a birth that is epic and historical, that God is powerfully involved in. John the Baptist is also, next to Jesus, the most powerful and influential preacher in Israel's history. Think about this. John's preaching was so influential and so powerful that people thought he was the Messiah even though he never did a single miracle. He starts revival in Israel. Everybody goes to listen to John. That's why when Jesus says, who did you go out in the wilderness to see? He doesn't say, hey, have any of you ever heard of John the Baptist? Did you ever go listen to him? He doesn't ask that question because everybody has gone and listened to John preach. He's an incredibly powerful preacher. And then the third reason why this is such a shocking question is what he's been preaching is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the first person in history to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. John is telling people that Jesus is the Messiah before Jesus is telling people that he's the Messiah. Most of the people who end up following Jesus do so because they heard John first. Andrew, Peter, others of Jesus' disciples. Most of the crowds that are there are there because John told them that Jesus is the Messiah. This is his message. This is what he's been doing. God revealed to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows it from God himself. John is there at the baptism when Jesus shows up and he hears with his own ears God the Father say about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And John sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in a unique way. If anybody in Israel is going to know that Jesus is the Messiah, it's John. So why is he asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Why is he asking that question? Because he's in prison. John's having a crisis of faith. He understands Messiah is here to rescue Israel. And at some point, John is languishing in this prison and he says, look, maybe it's not you. Because if it's you, shouldn't you come do something about the fact that I'm in prison? We get when we suffer for being disobedient. We still don't like it, but we understand it. 
I did this wrong, I'm suffering as a result of that. The thing that causes the crisis of faith is when there is suffering, when we've been obedient. When we've been doing the things God's asked us to do. John has done everything he's been asked to do and here he is sitting in prison. And so suddenly John begins to doubt. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe there's somebody else we've been waiting for. If he was the Messiah, what am I doing in this prison? The thing about John is, is that it says that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus actually ups the ante and says, not only did he come in the spirit of Elijah, if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah that was to come, meaning John fulfills the Elijah prophecies that need to happen before Jesus returns. I mean, this is no insignificant figure in God's plan for salvation. But the fact that he comes in the spirit of Elijah reminds us it's not just John who has crises of faith. Elijah himself had a similar one. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is used by God to call down fire from heaven in the sight of all of Israel to show the people that God is God and that Baal is not. And Elijah does this amazing miracle and the children of Israel look and they go, well, yes, he's God. And they put to death the false prophets. And you would think, okay, finally, here we go. I don't know about you, but I've always wanted God to just show fire from heaven. I'm like, everybody will believe. Turns out not everybody does believe. And Jezebel, who's the queen in the land, decides after she sees fire from heaven that she wants to kill Elijah. And Elijah goes to God and says, well, this is hopeless. Like, if she's not going to believe at this point, he says, Lord, put me to death. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. Elijah's having a crisis of faith. John the Baptist is having a crisis of faith. That's what I want to say to you. If you've experienced suffering, are experiencing suffering, see others around you going through things that you're like, God, you could do something about this and you're not. And you're doubting or you're having a crisis of faith. I just want you to know you're not alone. We all go through these times when we think, did I believe the wrong thing? Is Jesus really going to come and help? Where is he in the midst of all of this? John the Baptist is stumbling in his faith. You hear that in the very, very gentle rebuke of Jesus in verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John's stumbling. Elijah stumbled. We all stumble. When you see suffering and God doesn't seem to do anything about it, it creates crises of faith. And if you're going through that this morning, or you know someone who's going through that, first of all, I want to tell you you're not alone. And secondly, that God has a word of encouragement for you today. So let's listen to what Jesus says to John, because it's not just for John, it's for us today as well. Verse four, disciples come from John to Jesus with this question. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What Jesus is saying is, look, there is stuff happening. There's powerful things happening in this world. See, we ask the question, why should anything bad ever happen to someone who's good? But the reality is we live in such a dark and fallen world and our own sinful nature as humans, both individually and collectively, have so marred creation. The real question we ought to ask is, why does anything good happen at all in this world? Jesus says, look, the power of God is manifest. Stuff is happening. Jesus himself is doing miraculous things. And he wants us to remember, hey, look, you and I may not be seeing exactly what we want to see happen in our life, but that doesn't mean God's not involved. That doesn't mean God's not at work in this world in and through Jesus. You may notice that on our platform we have this candle. Uh, It's over here by the cross. We don't usually point it out. We call it our salvation candle. And the reason we don't point it out most weeks is because we don't want it to become an idol or a focal point or anything like that. But what it is up here is we light that candle anytime we hear news of somebody coming to faith in Jesus. So we love it when you share with us, like a friend or somebody you've been praying for, we get a chance to light that candle. Some weeks it's not lit and we leave it up there as a sort of encouragement to say, keep praying for people to come to faith. But other weeks we light it as a silent testimony that if you walk in here, you can go, hey, you know what? I don't know that story, but somebody came to faith. The candle's lit this week because uh, we received an email from someone who watches regularly uh, Calvary service who's been praying for his brother for years and years and let us know this week that his brother accepted Jesus as his savior. <clears throat> so we celebrate, you know what? Even though there's darkness all around us or there may be darkness in our lives, Jesus is still lighting candles in this world. But having said that, if I'm honest with you, sometimes hearing that Jesus is involved in other people's lives actually makes it worse. I think that's what John is going through. See verse 2? When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. See, the problem is, is you hear about God doing stuff in other people's lives, and like John, you say, but I'm languishing in prison. Nobody's been more obedient than John. Did you hear Jesus himself say that? Nobody has done what John has done. And John hears about all the blind who are receiving sight and the deaf who are hearing and the people who are coming to faith. And he does the same thing that I do. And you probably too do. What about me, Lord? Like, shouldn't you be doing something? John does not want Jesus to stop causing blind people to see. He does not want Jesus to stop leading people to faith. 
If he was here this morning, he would clap too. He's excited that somebody comes to faith. But the question is, hearing about what Jesus is doing for other people sometimes makes us feel worse. These disciples have come from John because John is essentially saying, God, did you forget about me? Here I am, Lord, like I'm in prison. I'm really glad you're... I'm really glad you're doing this stuff for all those other people. But shouldn't you do something for me? Even though that's not the right attitude. Jesus meets John in that. Because look in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving. Notice it doesn't say after John's disciples left. The stuff Jesus says about John is not just for his audience's benefit or for our benefit. He says this for John's benefit. This is Jesus' message back to John. He says, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? And this is Jesus speaking directly to John. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What is Jesus doing for John? He's letting him know that God sees him where he's at. That God's not forgotten about him. That although it seems strange to us, but in God's world, it's not how well things are going in your life that show your spiritual maturity. It's how much suffering God allows in your life that shows your spiritual maturity. And what Jesus is doing for John is reminding him, John, I wouldn't want this for you either, but this is the plan. And please know that your father sees you. He's not forgotten about all that you've done. He's not forgotten about who you are. It's really interesting. Jesus does not use the past tense here. He does not say John the Baptist was the greatest. He doesn't say John the Baptist was a prophet and the forerunner. John is. He is still doing viable ministry. John is important to God. And while other people can't necessarily see it, God has John right where he's at and God sees who he is and what he's doing and God has not forgotten about John. John languishing in prison, his best days are not in the past. They're happening right now. And so Jesus sends a word of encouragement to John. And it's the same word of encouragement he wants to send to us in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of a crisis of faith. You're going through a hard time right now. But God sees you. He's not forgotten about you. He knows that what you're going through is difficult. But you matter to him. He wants to use you even in the state that you're in now especially in the state that you're in now, in your suffering and in your struggle, to be a blessing to others.
I told you we lit the candle this week um, because someone came to faith. I will also say, it's a bit vague and cryptic, but i just like to say in my own life, at Calvary in our sort of extended personal circle, that it's just been tough. Tough to see some suffering happening and saying, exactly with John, why, Lord? Why are you doing this? And to see this candle lit is a reminder. God's still at work. Not just in that person who got to lead his brother to faith, but also in our involvement with that person. That the suffering that we're going through, that the prayers that we offer for others in the midst of our own prisons, in the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own, that God is still using those things. Don't miss the fact that these disciples are here listening to Jesus because John sent them there in the midst of his crisis of faith. Even his doubts are being used by God to help people grow to know Jesus. And the same is true for you. You may feel guilty. What am I doing having these questions? You may think, I shouldn't be thinking about God this way. Well, if you're human, if you're like John the Baptist, if you're like Elijah, if you're like the rest of us, when you go through suffering, you can't help but ask, are we believing the wrong stuff? Should we be believing in something else? The good news is, even in your doubts, God still wants to use those to bless you and to bless others. You're not where you are by accident. Well, our passage closes with a challenge and an encouragement. The last three verses are a bit cryptic. And we think, what do these have to do with a crisis of faith? Verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. <clears throat> the son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Here's the challenge that Jesus offers at the end of this discussion about John. See, on one hand, there's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was asked to live a very difficult life. A life, ascetic sort of life, where he had to deny himself living in the wilderness most of his life. Listen to this. I, I sometimes forget this, but it really, when it hit me, I'm like, wow. John is asked to live such a hard life by Jesus that the Pharisees think he has a demon. These are the super legalists and they take a look at John and they're like, yeah, that guy is crazy. That guy has lost it. Jesus asked John to live that kind of life and they take a look at John and his suffering and the crowd, the audience is like, yeah, I don't want that. But then you got Jesus on the other hand and he too is asked to live, live a life of suffering. His is different than John, but the same. In Jesus' case, he was not asked to live out in the wilderness. He was asked to live such a welcoming and open life to spend time with tax collectors and sinners that he would be accused by the same people of being a glutton and a drunkard. 
rejected by the same crowd. They look at John and say, well, we don't want that path, that's too hard. They look at Jesus and say, we don't want that path, that's too hard. Both John and Jesus end up dying at the hands of the powers that be, not for disobeying, but for obeying. And the challenge in verses 16 to 19 is the crowds are watching. And they look at John and they go, we don't want that kind of life. And they look at Jesus and they go, we don't want that kind of life. But the subtle challenge in verses 16 to 19 is, what's your other choice? Jesus is trying to say, there's not a, there's not a third option which involves no suffering. There's no way to follow God. You can't do it differently than John or Jesus. There's not a third path. And the challenge to us is in the midst of admittedly very real crises of faith, very real doubts, very real questions. The challenge is, what's your other option? Because what the generation of Jesus did is they just, they chose, they chose apathy. They chose to quit. They chose to not engage. And every one of us has had the same temptation. We think this is just too hard. It's not supposed to be this hard. And the gentle challenge from Jesus is quitting might seem like a good decision now. Just melt back into the crowd. Just pretend none of this stuff is true. Just get on with your life. But it's not going to turn out well in the end which is our encouragement this morning as we come to communion. See, what communion is a reminder of how John's story, but especially how Jesus' story ends. And the point is, yes, Jesus was rejected. Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, Jesus suffered intensely for being obedient. But God raised him from the dead and has seated him at the right hand of the throne on high and Jesus himself will return to this earth and establish a kingdom that will never end forever and ever and he will reward those who didn't sit on the sidelines. He's not coming back to give a kingdom to those who quit. He's not coming back to give a kingdom to those who refuse to engage. He's coming back to give a kingdom to those who in the midst of suffering and doubt said, I'm going to try to push forward. I'm going to try to keep believing. I'm going to try to listen to the encouragement from the Lord. I'm going to keep going. Trust me, quitting may feel like an option now, but it's not. It won't work out well. Nobody gets saved sitting on the sidelines. No ministry happens when you don't engage. All Satan is trying to do is get you to quit. You see, in John's case, we might think, oh yeah, he used to do great ministry and now he's in prison. That's not how Jesus sees it. John used to do great ministry and now he's doing even greater ministry by going through this suffering. That's why Satan is trying to trip him up. And what Jesus says is, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because of me. This is a hard road. But the challenge at the end of this is, is what's our other option? 
to quit, to disengage. It may go well for a short period of time. But in the end, we'll miss out on who Jesus is and what he's doing and how he's going to redeem the sufferings that we're going through. The time of trouble and difficulty will end. Except if you quit.